we are finding PFAS in areas where there's no identifiable vector to its presence. And that has really been challenging. It's estimated that every American has PFAS in their blood at this point in time. Welcome to ChemLine, inside the chemical distribution industry. I'm your host, Eric Beyer. Each episode, we will take on topics that you need to know as they relate to the chemical distribution industry and how they could affect your business and even your everyday life. Chemicals play an important role in modern civilization. Tune in to dig into the hindrances and helpers ensuring chemicals are distributed safely and efficiently wherever they might be needed. Let's get to today's story. Welcome to ChemLine, inside the chemical distribution industry. I'm your host, Eric Beyer, and today we're diving into a topic that has been making headlines and sparking debates, PFAS. These substances, known as forever chemicals, have gained significant attention due to their persistence in the environment and potential health risks. Join us as we navigate through the complex landscape of PFAS within the chemical industry. We will uncover the truths behind PFAS, exploring their uses, their implications, and the ongoing efforts to address this pressing issue. Let's dive in. A new study finds that nearly half of the nation's drinking water contains potentially harmful forever chemicals. A popular brand of butter is disappearing off the shelves temporarily because of something called forever chemicals. Problems with these so-called forever chemicals go back decades and are located in many places around the U.S. So, before we can get into what PFAS are, it's important to understand the definition. Here to decipher for us is Lynn Bergeson, Managing Partner at Bergeson & Campbell, PC. PFAS, of course, include a broad category of chemicals that are more or less defined by virtue of their structural identity. We have a definition of PFAS that was created by EPA's Office of Pollution Prevention and Toxics for purposes of identifying this class of chemicals on the Tosca chemical inventory. And it includes per and polyfluorinated substances that contain two fully fluorinated carbons, which is important. Because of that definition, we have about 6,405 chemicals defined as PFAS for purposes of U.S. regulation under TSCA. Now, importantly, this definition is very different from the OECD definition, which is much broader. And that definition includes chemicals that have one fully fluorinated carbon. EPA's definition eliminates, happily to some, many pharmaceutical and agricultural chemicals that would otherwise be considered PFAS under the OECD definition due to the formation of a degradate product called trifluoroacetic acid. So TFA is not defined as a PFAS in the United States. It is defined as a PFAS in Europe, and hence we have about a 4,000 chemical count differential between the European and the U.S. definition. Interestingly, states (laughs) can define PFAS yet even differently. 
then the United States federal government and, of course, federal agencies can define PFAS differently. All of this is a very long-winded way of saying there is much confusion about what is and is not a PFAS, but because the OECD definition is as broad as it is, many of our clients are using the worst case definition, hence the broadest definition, which would include the OECD definition, which includes, as I said, some 10,000 plus chemicals. It's very important for NACD member companies to be mindful of these jurisdictional differences because the law is different in the United States federal government, state governments, and European agencies, and even Great Britain, since Brexit defines PFAS differently. So there's there's no universal definition. Now that we have a clearer picture of how PFAS are defined and categorized, we can now ask ourselves where these substances can be found. Some of these places may surprise you. Here's Dave McMillan, Vice President of Environmental at Axon Underwriting with more. We could talk for days about the types of products and, and industries that PFAS is used in. Really, Again, the fluorine carbon bond of these PFAS materials just make their performance extremely attractive and versatile for a whole different host of industries. Primary industries are the ones everyone thinks of, nonstick coatings. PFAS has been widely used in the production of cookware, again, Teflon. So you find it in a lot of kitchenware and bakeware. Additionally, stain-resistant fabrics and carpets. I think it was back in the 80s when Stain Master Carpet really started to take off. And again, that fluorine-carbon bond repels water, oil, and other liquids. So there is a lot of desirable uses in a myriad of different textiles. Outdoor water-repellent gear, PFOS, things like Gore-Tex, other waterproof materials like Event that you find in your rain jackets and things like that. There's been a wide use here. This is one area I will not limit my PFAS exposure because I love my Gore-Tex jacket. So I'm going to wear that thing every time it rains, no matter what. PFAS is also present in food packaging. Again, the, the resistance to oil and grease and water makes it really favorable for like pizza boxes that get greasy, burger boxes, things like that. So there's a wide use in that industry. Certainly firefighting foams. That's something that everyone's familiar with, their use in the aqueous film forming foams. Probably second to none in regards to the ability to extinguish a fire and still widely used in a lot of different facilities. And there's also a heavy presence in electronics in the electrical industry. PFAS, their characteristics make them favorable in the semiconductor manufacturing segment where they serve as anti-static agents and lubricants. It's also wide use in the metal industry, either in metal plating or metal cutting. PFOS can be used as a surface treatment agent for corrosion resistance in metal plating. It's also used as a lubricant in metal cutting, so you'll find its presence in a lot of metal working fluids. And then in the automotive and aviation industries, PFOS is used a lot because of their resistance to heat, chemicals, and moisture in regards to wire and cable coatings, gaskets, engine seals, things like that. It's remarkable how widespread the use of PFOS are, yet they are still widely misunderstood. While the use of PFOS is worrisome due to the fact that many break down very slowly and can build up in people, animals, and the environment over time, 
we wouldn't be able to do some extremely vital things without them, including saving lives. Here to discuss how PFAS are used to successfully fight fire and give us a deeper understanding of Class B firefighting systems is Edward Witte, shareholder and market team leader of the Environmental Strategies Practice Group at Godfrey & Kahn. So Class B firefighting systems are means of addressing Class B fires. And, and a Class B fire is a fire of flammable liquids or flammable materials, which, you know, when we think of that, we think about petroleum fuel uh, for aircraft, chemicals within a facility that may be stored. And if there were a fire, it would be a disaster. And therefore, there's got to be a, a means of addressing that fire as quickly as possible. Same also at airports and military bases where you have jet fuel and other materials that you know are very combustible and, and very flammable once they ignite. So what basically was determined is that PFAS, when present in what is known as aqueous film forming foam or AFFF, is very effective, perhaps more effective than any other means of putting a fire out and really keeping it out. PFAS within the AFFF smothers the, the fire, smothers the flammable material and takes away the oxygen. So it puts the fire out and keeps it out. For that reason, the DOD and mil-spec standards require the use of AFFF as part of firefighting components at airports. One of the areas though that I, I have seen through my communications with clients of ours that I think is perhaps a little bit less well understood is that Class B firefighting systems are prevalent across the country in industrial facilities, including chemical distribution and chemical formulation facilities. And the reason that they're there is because, you know, a fire within one of those locations would be very expensive, could cause a lot of damage, could cause threats to human health. So there's a bit of a trade-off in understanding, do we have a, a system that puts a fire out really effectively, even though there may be some environmental repercussions from those. You know, using PFAS to fight dangerous fires really puts things into perspective. It makes you think that maybe, just maybe, these substances can and should be used in some cases. Earlier, we chatted with Dave, and he mentioned the heavy presence of PFAS in electronics, especially chip manufacturing. Here with more on the benefits of using PFAS in the chip manufacturing process is NACD member John Logue, CEO of the Royale Group. The benefits are it's so chemically resistant and it's such a strong bond. As you get smaller and smaller and smaller chips, you have to get you know infinite in your in your degree of precision and everything else. And these unfortunately, these forever chemicals are perfectly fit for this kind of use where you can't break them down. You you know, when you're talking about parts per million, parts per billion contaminations and stuff like that, which you can't have, that's why they're so important in, in this manufacture. A lot of these chip fabrication companies, you know, the Intel's, Taiwanese Semiconductor, Samsung, they build their fabrication units around this technology. And without this technology, you're not going to have the four nanometer, three nanometer chip processing capabilities. Since PFAS are so important to chip manufacturing, we could certainly run into issues as these substances become more regulated. Exploring alternatives could prove to be beneficial. Here is John with more. People are desperately working on alternatives. There are some processes in with uh, metal oxides, zirconiums, and maybe some titaniums, and also some styrene-based polymers. But again, the advantage of these forever chemicals, just from the name, they're so strong, 
and uh, it's so hard to break them down. So as you get smaller and smaller and smaller chips, you have to have less, less, less contamination and everything else and has to be more resistant. So it's very difficult. And, and actually, one of the things that the Biden administration is looking at is to invest quite a bit of money in looking at alternatives for chips. Now that we have some insight on what PFAS are and their uses, it's time to dive into how these substances are regulated. There are so many questions and a lot of misinformation out there. So how can our members ensure the safety of their facilities while staying well informed about what is regulated and what isn't, including what Lynn said earlier about the state rules versus federal and even international? We have Mr. Witte back with us to provide some more clarity on this matter. PFAS right now are more comprehensively regulated on a state-by-state basis, but there's not a lot of continuity between the states either. In the absence of federal attention to PFAS as a regulated substance leading up to 2020 and 2021, a lot of states went out on their own effectively in order to develop PFAS regulatory standards consistent with the existing state programs that were already in place. So you you have a tremendous variety of different standards of acceptable levels of PFAS in groundwater, for example, or in drinking water, or what is allowed in a wastewater discharge. What we're beginning to see is that through the US EPA's PFAS strategic roadmap, some of the federal standards are beginning to fall into place. Some of them require a year of opportunity for public comment before they become final. But I think that what we're going to begin to see in the coming years, end of 2023 into 2024, is that some of those proposed regulations are going to become final and effective. And once they do, states can regulate those same substances, but not less strict than the federal standard. So if I was talking about before the Safe Drinking Water Act proposed numbers for allowable PFAS in drinking water of four parts per trillion, or four nanograms per liter, if that becomes effective and final, then any given state, which may have already adopted an acceptable PFAS standard in drinking water, would have to adjust their standard to make it not less strict than four parts per trillion. We are beginning to see some of these federal standards come through to complement the state level regulations, and that will filter down into the states that don't have standards yet. However, in the states where PFAS regulations haven't passed, the results have been well confusing. Here is Lynn again to share her expert insights on the matter. Maine is probably out in front of most states because it enacted a law a couple of years ago requiring manufacturers of products that market products in its state, in the state of Maine, to report intentionally added PFAS. And the definition of PFAS for purposes of the state of Maine is, of course, the broadest definition of PFAS, which would would include the one fully fluorinated carbon atom. The reason why that was a hugely important state initiative is because it caught a lot of people unaware and the law evolved as the deadline for purposes of reporting, which was January 1 of of this year, became close and, and, and upon us. More recently, the state of Maine has deferred the reporting requirement to 2025, in large part because its regulatory infrastructure for accepting that information was not quite what it could have been and should have been for purposes of reporting. So manufacturers come 
January of 2025, will be required to report products that include PFAS that are intentionally added, give a sense of how much PFAS there is, and additional information as that state law requires. That's just one small example of a state requirement that manufacturers of products that contain intentionally added PFAS will be subject to. Other state requirements vary. Even though the current regulations in place are sporadic and confusing, one thing is clear, and that is just how challenging it is to regulate PFAS due to their widespread use, as well as the growing concerns about the potential health effects. Here again, with more on those potential health effects, is Dave McMillan. One of the unique components of PFAS is the myriad of different health effects has been linked to. Increased cholesterol levels have been linked to PFAS exposure, and then the subsequent cardiovascular diseases associated with that. Liver damage, including liver inflammation, have been linked to PFAS exposure, as well as thyroid disorders. Certain PFAS can actually change thyroid hormone levels and impact function and regulation there. PFAS can also have an impact on your immune system in regards to decreased vaccine response, increased susceptibility to infectious disease, and altered immune function. It's also been documented to cause developmental effects, specifically in utero when a pregnant mother may have exposure. We have seen fetal development issues resulting in low birth weights, delayed growths, and other developmental issues. And then the big one is really a myriad of different cancers, kidney, testicular, thyroid cancers. There's lots of evidence around this, and and these are sort of the easy ones to identify because you find cancer clusters around these historical manufacturing sites where the levels of cancer are a little bit higher, and it becomes a little bit easier to make those toxicological connections. If you compare this to something like asbestos, where there's a singular exposure and a singular health effect, it really makes regulating, identifying the toxicity of these thousands of compounds a a challenge. The presence in the environment is extremely alarming. There's no surprise that you would find PFAS contamination around those historical manufacturing sites where you've had historic industrial discharges, things like that. No surprise that you would find it in certain water systems that would be downstream of those manufacturing locations. However, we are finding PFAS in areas where there's no identifiable vector to its presence. And that has really been challenging. It's estimated that every American has PFAS in their blood at this point in time. And a few years ago, one of the governmental studies, they sampled 5,300 water systems. 18% of those contained PFAS. And so we're seeing a lot of residual development or a lot of residual persistence of PFAS from secondary and tertiary vectors just because of their persistence in the environment. So... Knowing these systemic impacts, where do we or where does EPA go from here? Recognizing the importance of PFAS in certain industries, it is crucial to prioritize comprehensive regulation and establish clear standards to guarantee safety and environmental protection. Moving forward, it is important to continue researching and understanding the impact of PFAS while taking proactive measures to mitigate their risks and promote responsible usage.
you have to have a balance. You have to have a conversation. You have to understand. Lawmakers have to understand what the implications of banning these products are. And you've got to use science-based judgment. It can't be a political, popular banning of these things. It should absolutely be, you know, the National Academy of Science. Someone needs to come in and say, these are the levels. And what is the risk-benefit analysis, which we really haven't done. This should be, you know, what's essential? What's national defense? What is non-essential? Maybe there needs to be a, needs to be a tiered approach. I'm very environmentally conscious. I don't want my kids and my grandkids to, to be exposed to this stuff. But then again, there's a geopolitical situation going on where if we give up making these products and we let, say, China be the controller of these products, and there's an incident in the South China Sea or in Taiwan, and the Chinese say, hmm, maybe it's not time today to ship any of these products to you, this could be a big problem. NACD has many resources on this topic on our website, www.nacd.com, if you would like to learn more. For now, that's our show and the end of season one. We appreciate your support and engagement throughout this inaugural season of Chemline. Make sure to tune in next season for more exciting discussions as we dive further into the fascinating world of the chemical distribution industry. Stay curious and stay informed. Thank you for tuning in to Chemline. If you like what you heard, please like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on social media at, at the National Association of Chemical Distributors on LinkedIn and at NACD underscore RD on Twitter. Don't hesitate to reach out to us with story ideas, questions, or concerns. We can be reached at communications at NACD.com. For now, we'll catch you on the next episode of Chemline.